If you have your Bibles or your Bible app, you can turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2 is where we're going to be today. It's a little letter towards the end of the New Testament, which we'll be uh, digging into. Hope you had a wonderful Christmas and New Year. Personally, I think I was asleep on the couch by 9.30 on New Year's Eve, so, you know, it was a real big night in the Shoemaker household. (laughs) But anyway, hope you had a wonderful Christmas and a happy New Year. I'm looking forward to uh, all that God has for us in this new year. We're actually uh, beginning the year by kicking off a brand new sermon series called Grace Changes Everything. For the next few weeks, we're going to be digging into how the grace of God changes everything about our lives. Now, there's a a story that's been told about C.S. Lewis. He was at a a conference and he arrived late at a, a, a session and he asked what the topic was. And when he was told, it was about the unique contribution of Christianity among all the different world religions. He supposedly replied and said, well, that's easy. He said, it's grace. Grace is what sets Christianity apart from all other religions and worldviews. And we're going to be digging into the difference that grace makes in our lives in the coming weeks. Today, we're going to talk about how grace changes everything about us and our lives. Next week, Ben's going to talk a little bit about how grace changes our mission, our purpose. Then we'll talk about grace change, how grace changes our money, the way that we deal with our money, spend our money, interact with it. And then finally, in week number four, we'll talk about how grace changes our relationships, the way we interact and treat one another. So, looking forward to that in the coming weeks, but I'd like to begin today by leading us in prayer. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you that it is living and active, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And Lord, as we now open it up together, would you speak to us? Would you shape us? Would you change us to know your great love and to be shaped and changed by it? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there is a certain question that we tend to focus on at this time of year especially. There's a certain issue that we tend to spend a lot of time reflecting on. And it's simply this. How do we grow? How do we change? How do we stop bad habits and start good new habits? This is why we make New Year's resolutions. We don't want to just keep doing the same things. We don't want to keep making the same mistakes. We want to grow. We want to change. We want to make progress. And so we make all different kinds of resolutions to spend less and to save more, to get out of debt, to get fit. I mean, gyms must just love this time of year, all those new memberships. Ikea as well, because we make resolutions to get organized, to sort out our clutter, to get off social media maybe, to spend less time on our phones and to spend more time with our loved ones, to learn a new skill, to read more books, maybe to come to church. Maybe you made a resolution to come to church more and that's why you're here today. Whatever it might be, we make all these different resolutions because we want to grow, we want to change, we want to make progress. We don't want to get stuck in the same ruts. 
Now, the question is, how do we grow? How do we change? How do we make progress? Especially when it comes to our faith. I mean, if I was to ask you, how do you grow in your faith? How do do you grow in love for God, knowledge of God, godliness, Christ-likeness? What would your answer be? Maybe you might suggest, well, I just need greater willpower, greater self-control. Maybe you would say, well, no, I just need greater knowledge. I don't know enough about God. I, I need more head knowledge. Maybe you'd say, I need an accountability partner. I need someone I can be honest with and I can talk to and I can share with. And those are all good and true and important things. Those things all help us to grow. But today, we're going to look at a a passage in Titus chapter 2, and it tells us something slightly different. It it gives us something deeper. Without wanting to be clickbaity, it gives us the secret of how we change, how we grow, or more correctly, how God changes us. So, if you have your your Bible there in front of you, let's have a look at Titus chapter 2. If you don't, you can follow along on the screen. This is what we read, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us, trains us, instructs us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Now, to give you some context about what's going on here, Titus is a letter that was written about 65 AD, 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus. It was written by the Apostle Paul, not to a church, but to a church leader named Titus. Now, Titus had the very difficult job of serving and ministering on the island of Crete. Now, Crete was famous for its immorality, kind of like the Las Vegas of the ancient world. Apparently, people just stayed drunk all throughout the day. Apparently, all the politicians were totally corrupt and apparently lying was a form of art. In fact, in the Greek language, the word Crete was slang for lying. To Crete was to lie. Even their own philosopher, a man named Epimenides, he said this about his own countrymen. He said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Not exactly the place you wanted to raise your children. And possibly not exactly the place where you wanted to be a church leader. I mean, imagine you're a church leader in this context. You might be tempted to think, is there ever going to be any progress? Is anybody ever going to change? And Paul writes to Titus to encourage him to say, yes, God can and does change hearts, change lives, change people. And Paul writes to Titus and he tells him how God changes people, how God does it. And the answer is perhaps surprising because Paul doesn't say it's through greater willpower or greater knowledge or even an accountability partner. But rather, he says, God changes people 
through his grace? The answer is the grace of God. Look closely at verse 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It, the it is referring to the grace of God. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. If we want to grow, if we want to change, if we want to make progress, we do it through an ongoing experience of God's grace. Through an ongoing application of God's grace to our mind, to our hearts, to our lives. In other words, you might want to think about it this way. If we want to grow, if we want to change, we need to become a little bit like a submarine. Now, it's possible for a submarine to float on the surface. It's able to navigate and operate on the surface of the water. But a submarine is designed to dive into the depths of the ocean. It's in the depths of the ocean where a submarine will operate at its full capacity. And see, you and I, our faith can operate at a surface level. But if we're going to become all that God designed us to be, we need to dive into the depths of God's grace. We need to submerge ourselves in his grace and goodness to us in Jesus. And this is what will help us to change and to grow from the inside out. Now, what does that look like practically? I guess we need to answer the question, well, what is grace? Grace can be one of those Christianese words that we use often, but maybe we don't actually know what it means. Well, grace can be defined in a few different ways. Most commonly, it's unearned favor. It's undeserved kindness. I heard someone define it this way as mercy, not merit. Mercy, not merit. And I like that because grace is basically the opposite of karma. Karma essentially says that you get what you deserve. Whereas grace says, actually, because of all that God has done for us in Christ, we do not get what we deserve. Death and judgment. And actually, we're given what we do not deserve. Forgiveness and new life. It's mercy, not merit. This is why someone has come up with the acronym. I'm sure you've heard it before. Grace, G-R-A-C. God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches, all that God is, all that he has, is given to us through the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And this seems to be what Paul is saying here in Titus chapter 2, because notice that he says the grace of God has appeared. Now, this word is only used a couple of other times in the New Testament, and it's used to refer to the rising of the sun. And it's almost as if Paul is saying that the grace of God has risen and dawned upon us. Now, what's he talking about? Well, of course, we've just had Christmas. And so we know that a light has dawned on us in the coming of Jesus, that the grace of God has appeared in all of its fullness in Jesus. The Gospel of John says about Jesus that he has come full of grace and truth. Jesus has brought God's grace to us in all of its fullness. Now, why is the coming of Jesus grace? Why is it such good news? Well, Paul goes on to tell us here in this verse. He says, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation. This is what Jesus came to do, to seek and to save the lost. 
And this is what Jesus has done through his first coming, through his life, death and resurrection. He has saved us from everything that would destroy us. On the cross, he paid the penalty of our sin. He absorbed our judgment. And when he rose from death, he defeated death on our behalf. He secured a place for us in God's family forever. Not because we deserve it. Not because we've earned it. Not because we're so good. But because he's so good. And he offers it to us as a gift of grace. It's what Paul goes on to say a few verses later in chapter 3. He says, but when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared. Again, talking about Jesus. He saved us. Not, I don't know how the Bible can make it any clearer. Not because of righteous things we had done. Not because of our moral record. Not because of our goodness. But because of his mercy. It's a gift from God. And this gift is available to all people. That's what Paul goes on to say. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to not just religious people, not just good people, not white people, not black people, not rich people, not poor people, not any particular kind of people. All people. There's nobody in the world who is outside the reach of the grace of God. There's nobody who has sinned too much or run too far. God's grace is on offer to all. God's arms are open to all. This is why Philip Yancey says in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace? He says, grace means there is nothing I can do to make God love me more and nothing I can do to make God love me less. It means that I, even I, who deserve the opposite, am invited to take my place at the table in God's family. Now, it almost seems too good to be true, doesn't it? Maybe it makes you think, okay, but what's the catch? There's always a catch. There's no catch. God is that kind, God is that good, and God is that gracious. God has done far more for us than we could have ever dared, dreamed, or imagined. And when you experience this grace, this kindness, this acceptance, this forgiveness, when, when you settle down into this grace, when you dive into the depths of this grace, it begins to change you from the inside out. It begins to give you a new perspective. It begins to set you on a new path. We might say it this way, grace brings salvation, salvation brings change. And this is what Paul goes on to say in verse 12. He says that this grace of God, which is so freely given to us, it doesn't just kind of hang there in the air. It actually begins to teach us and train us and instruct us to say no to ungodliness and, and worldly passions, desires and temptations that would take us away from what God wants for us, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. I, I like the way Eugene Peterson uh, translates this verse in his paraphrase of the Bible called the message. He says, we're being shown how to turn our backs on a godless, indulgent life and how to take on a God-filled, God-honoring life. This is a good verse to, to kind of 
have maybe as your verse for 2022 to want to live a God-filled, God-honoring life. This is what the grace of God invites us into. It begins to change us from the inside out in every area of our lives. That's what Paul means when he talks about being self-controlled. He's talking about ourselves, our relationship to ourselves, controlling ourselves. When he talks about being upright, he's talking about the way that we treat others. Being just, being fair, being kind, not being manipulative. And when he talks about being godly, he's talking about the way we relate to God. Loving God, serving God, worshipping Him wholeheartedly. The grace of God changes us from the inside out in every area of our lives. And this means don't misunderstand grace. Grace does not mean that the way we live doesn't matter. Grace does not mean that we have a license to do whatever we want, whenever we want, the way that we want to do it. Grace is both forgiveness for our failings and our sins and our shortcomings, past, present, future. And grace is power and motivation and strength to want to obey and please God. Now, I'm not talking about perfection. For all of us perfectionists in the room, just... The life of Christianity is not a life of perfection, but it is a life that sets you off in a new direction. A direction to pursue God, to know God, empowered by the grace of God and the Spirit of God. Now, maybe you're a Christian here this morning and you're thinking, well, you know, this sounds wonderful, but Titus 2 verse 12, it hasn't really been happening for me lately. I've probably been saying yes to sin and no to godliness far more than I would like to. If that's you, what would God say to you? What would God say to the the discouraged, bit defeated Christian this morning? I think he would say something similar to what Robert Murray McShane, a Scottish pastor from the 1800s, what he famously said. Have a look on the screen. That for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace. And all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love. And rest in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with the heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart so there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying in this year, in 2022, put all your attention on Jesus. Don't fixate on what you've done or haven't done or what you're doing. Look at what he's done for you. Look at who he is. Look at his incredible grace and mercy to you. And allow that truth and allow that love to fill you and to change you from the inside out. And the reason I think that God would say this to us is because this is what Paul goes on to say in verses 13 to 14. He says to us, look to Jesus. Look to him. And the first thing he says is is look ahead to Jesus' return. He says, the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation, that teaches us to live godly lives. Then verse 13, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Paul's saying, if you want to live a changed life in the present, then look ahead to the return of Jesus in the future. Now, how does contemplating the return of Jesus change our lives today in the present? It makes me think a little bit of when my wife Molly and I were expecting our first child. The arrival of that baby in the future changed a lot about our lives in the present. We had to buy a bigger house. We had to buy cots and prams and car seats and all manner of baby things. We had to set up the nursery. We did a parenting course. We read parenting books and so on and so forth. The arrival of that child in the future, it changed our lives in the present. And it's similar when it comes to being a Christian and contemplating the return of Jesus. His return, his arrival in the future, it should change our lives in the present. It should change our priorities. What we think is really important in life. It should change our decision-making. You know, maybe we don't just take a job because it's got higher pay. We take other considerations into account. It should change the way we spend our money, the way we spend our time, the way we raise our kids. It should change the way we define success. It's not just bigger and better and faster and whatever. It's faithfulness to Jesus. And so Paul is saying, look ahead at the return of Jesus, that final day. What is going to matter on that day? That's what should matter today. And begin to pursue those things in your life. Look ahead to the return of Jesus. It will change your life in the present. But that's not all that Paul says. He also tells us to look back to Jesus' death on the cross. Because that too changes our lives in the present. Again, in verse 14, he says, The grace of God has appeared that teaches us to live godly lives while we wait for Jesus' return. And then verse 14 who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. Now, this has got to be one of the most amazing verses in the Bible. Just look closely what it says. Firstly, Jesus gave himself. The death of Jesus on the cross was voluntary. No one made him do it. No one twisted his arm. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He gave himself over to it. Why? Look at this. For us. For you and for me. He stood in our place. He paid our price. He died our death. Why? To redeem us. To purchase us. To claim us. To rescue us from all wickedness to rescue us from the pigsty of our sin, from those things that degrade us, from those things that stain us. And not just to rescue us, but to purify for himself a people that are his very own, to cleanse us of all those things that have stained us. Now, it makes me think of the parable of the prodigal son the son that runs away from his father's home, takes his inheritance, goes away, spends it all, ends up in a literal pigsty. Then he comes to his senses and he returns to his father and, and what does he receive? An embrace, a robe, a ring, a feast. And this is what God has done for us. This is the grace that God has given to us. This is the love that God has shown to us. And when you look back at that love, it changes your life in the present. 
And Paul goes on to say, it makes you eager to do what is good. You want to please God, not because you have to earn His love. Not because you, you have to be good to become His child. But because you already have His love. You are already His child. You don't perform to get in the family, you're already in the family. And now you can live in light of that status. It's like, a little bit like a story I heard about the late Queen Mother. Apparently, when her children, Princess Elizabeth, the, the current Queen, and Princess Margaret, when they would go out to a party or a, a function or, or a visit, she would say to them before they left, she would say, royal children have royal manners. And it was a reminder that their status should drive their behaviour. That their behaviour needed to match their status. And these verses are saying something similar to, to Christians. We are members of the royal family of the universe. God's family. And we are called to live in light of that status. We're royal children called to lead royal lives. And when we fail, when we fall, when we sin, our Father picks us up, cleans us up, and embraces us again. And we move forward by His grace, with His help, for His glory. This is why Christ came. To purchase us, to purify us, to redeem us, to make us His very own. And He's done it all as an act and as a gift of grace. This is the key to everything. The grace of God. This is what gets you started in the Christian life. This is what helps you to keep going, and it's grace that will lead us safely home. And so if you've walked in here today and you're, you're a bit confused about Christianity, if, if you're maybe discouraged in your faith, this is the key to everything. Grace changes everything. And because grace changes everything, don't ever move on from it, don't ever take it for granted, but live your life in light of it. Dive into the depths of God's grace and goodness this year. It will change you from the inside out for good and forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your amazing, abundant, undeserved, unearned, grace to us in Jesus. Thank you that your grace has appeared in Jesus. And we can now look to him and we can see your smile. We can rest in your arms. We can be part of your family. Not because we've earned it, not because we've deserved it, but because of your mercy. So, Lord, help us to rest. Help us to dive into this grace this year. Help us not just to float along the surface, but to dive deep into the depths of your grace and your kindness and your love in the Lord Jesus. And, Lord, let it change us from the inside out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.